0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for this channel. Today we're talking with Phoebe Chow about her study of Britain's relationship with China in the early 20th century, entitled Britain's Imperial Retreat from China, 1900 to 1931. Phoebe, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Mark, thanks.
0: Uh, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. Um... So I'm based in London, but as you can tell from my accent, I'm not British. I'm I actually grew up in the States, so I'm Chinese American. But I've always been interested in British history. Um, I, I came across this topic somewhat in a roundabout way. I was doing a master's in history, and I was fulfilling a language requirement in Moscow, um, so I was studying Russian at that time. But I took a side trip to London, where I met some of my friends who were studying at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and they were in the history department. I told them I was interested in, in doing a PhD. And they recommended that I get in touch with Anthony Best, who was a specialist um, in, in, in you know, um, international history, but kind of Sino, uh, sorry, in, um, in actually Japanese and British relations. But he was interested in the region in general. So I went back to Russia, um, found his book in the Russian card catalog in the Lenin library and got into contact with him. And he told me about an interest he had um in British intellectuals and their perceptions of China and at that point I was in the Car- common archives I've been looking at some things I was really interested in the rise of communism in China the rise of nationalism in the 1920s and The anti-imperialist movement and the British at that time were the main kind of anti uh, main target of the anti-imperialist movement um, and so I thought that that'd be a great opportunity I could study in London um, and actually it was a really uh, great topic to do in London because I lived literally a 10-minute walk from the British Library, so I had access to uh, to all kinds of personal papers. I was close to well, just the two bride to Kew Gardens, which is where the National Archives are. So that's where all the government papers are. So there are tons of foreign office documents that I could look at. Um, I was also a 15 minute walk from the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, which has the largest and best missionary archives and all kinds of papers from people who are interested in China. Um, so it was a really uh, great topic. Um, I could also, you know, have easy train travel from London to all kinds of places um, throughout the UK. I, I went to Oxford, Cambridge, um, Manchester, Birmingham. So there. So yeah, it was it was um, a great opportunity to kind of explore mm-hmm. the rich um, archives in in Britain.
0: Yeah, and yeah. that does get to um, one of the, the key themes of your book, which is it's the role that British perceptions of China are playing in terms of shaping policy. And as you point out, those perceptions are usually not terribly accurate, but you really link the different perceptions with or sometimes how they shaped or oftentimes just simply rationalized the policy decisions they had to make.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, kind of, you know, being the children of, of immigrants and then and immigrating here to the UK, I was really interested um, in in cultural perceptions and and international history, international relations, um, and so yeah. So the focus of my book uh, it was be- based on my dissertation, which was actually quite narrowly focused on 1925 to 1927, which are the most important years for Britain's retreat from China. But I was interested in looking at British policy making in this period um, from the perspective of of, of uh, cultural perceptions. So. You know, because I, I, my argument, my main argument is that policymakers don't operate within a vacuum. Um, and they're not always just making policy kind of, you know, based, uh, just on, 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 uh, financial interests, which is a, a, an argument that a lot of imperial historians make. Um, but ra- rather, uh, the broader context is really important to take account of, uh, cultural assumptions, perceptions. So I wanted to bring in, um, the, you know how so the history the historical field has kind of developed there have been a lot of there's been a lot of interest in social history cultural history, and I thought that it's kind of time for political history to move on a, a bit with the times
0: mm-hmm. you begin the your your book in nineteen hundred why is yeah. that particular year so important
1: yeah um it's it's somewhat curious because I think anybody who's a specialist in in this topic would. We think okay britain's imperial retreat from china wait hold on this is 1900 this is during the box rebellion the british are actually uh, kind of you know taking a qu- taking quite a lot from china and, and almost seem to be continuing um their informal imperialism in china um but i i did this because i wanted to take a, a broader view because if the narratives about china were important you, you had to take. I had to take a, a a longer view. And 1900 was important because of the Boxer Crisis and because of um, the questions about whether or not China was awakening and whether or not the the Boxer Crisis and subsequent um, manifestations, you know, of, of anti-imperial protests were were uh, were evidence of a true Chinese nationalism and how seriously Britain needed to how seriously Britain needed to um, to, to take that um, take that challenge and whether or not. Britain should accede to the challenges of Chinese nationalism. Um, and so uh, there are all kinds of debates that rise up about the nature of Chinese awakening uh, from 1900 onwards.
0: And But you don't start just with 1900 in that respect. You actually begin yeah. the book by, looking at, by summarizing sort of those pre-1900 assumptions about China that the British held. You, you talk about this issue of Chinese awakening. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit about that in the context of those perceptions? I mean, was there just one commonly held view about China or were there different, shall we say, schools of thinking about China?
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. That's a good question. Um, so, you know, the idea of, of Orientalism, um, you know, has been, was really uh, important kind of in in, in history. Um, but the kind of problem is, is that I think the views are sometimes a bit, um, simplistic you know and, and the idea that western perceptions of the east uh, have always been negative and have always just kind of supported um uh, supported um you know imperial violence um to, against the east um but what i seek to show is that actually there are um, western perceptions of china are, are are completely biased um and they kind of come from nowhere in, in some cases but they but they aren't always kind of a self-confirming, a self-affirming discourse. Um, so, so yeah, so, to, so, you know, kind of British views of China, the earliest English accounts of China um, were based on Spanish and Portuguese works, um, especially by, by Catholic missionaries, the Jesuits who had gone to, uh, gone to, to, to China. And, um,
0: and just to be clear, a the, lot of what you're, they were write... reaching back as far as the 16th and 17th centuries in terms of when right. the English and then the British begin this, uh, this, uh, Distant, uh, but direct encounter with China.
1: Right, exactly, and and a lot of the emphasis on, on on the on these works were you know on China as a ancient civilization with this remarkable pedigree of achievements and cultured philosophy, um, but kind of on the negative side, the flip side was that its ancient you know its ancientness and its attainments had made the Chinese really arrogant and, and xenophobic. Um, and in the 17th and 18th century, as c- trade contacts continue, um, there's a really a rage for Chinese things. Um, um, and there's a really actually even influence in literature and in and theater. Uh, of, um, and even um, and, and that's called the uh, and, and that's the kind of popularization of chinoiserie. So it's a it's a style that uh, is really popular among the elite throughout all of Europe. Um, so, for example, uh, if you go to two gardens, which is the Royal Botanic Gardens in London, you can still see a Chinese pagoda today uh, because, when it, because the garden designer um, um, installed a, a Chinese pagoda. It was all part of you know, what was trendy at that time. Um, but, but it's commonly understood that by the 19th century, attitudes towards China were, 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 were somewhat changing, um, that as the British Empire kind of grew In confidence um, as as the industrial revolution progressed and as they began to make gains in empire, um, China's kind of ancient civilization that had been widely admired was increasingly condemned for its incurable conservatism and um, people began to prescribe the need for the West as a progressive modern force to open up China. Uh, and, And that's kind of in broad breaststrokes, but at the same time, even... While people are uh, using these these tropes about China to justify um, you know the outbreak of, of the first opium war, the need to open China up for free trade um, to open up you know the uh, the kind of sleeping Chinese um, even at the same time there' are also British who are really uncomfortable um, with uh, with the imperial endeavors and they and they actually take the kind of same tropes to justify themselves so so for example um the idea of china as a sleeping giant in a narcotic stupor kind of induced by opium um, is is taken by those who are anti-opium there's a really big anti-opium movement um a big opposition to the opium war in britain and and that kind of uh, picture of china is taken as a justification uh, to advocate a a more sympathetic attitude towards china
0: And it seems like there's a certain amount of guilt uh, implicit or explicit in that, given that it's the British that are injecting so much opium into China as a result of Mm -hmm. their desire for a favorable trade balance.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, and and the people who supported the opium war justified they said oh this isn't about opium it's about free trade it's about enabling the chinese to participate in the riches you know of the entire world you know but then but then those but, but it's really interesting is because um is that morality really plays into empire it on the one hand it justifies empire so in the case of the missionaries who are able to proselytize in china because of the gains from the unequal treaty signed in the 19th century um, on the one hand they gain from but on the other hand because their um because their mission is predicated kind of on a moral basis they're always uncomfortable with the way in which empire was begun and the way that it it continues and that's always eating away at, at the confidence of I think the British imperial project.
0: So when you get to 1900, while you still have, as you mentioned, the you know, British Empire at high tide, you have the British as you know one of the participants in the suppression of the Box Rebellion. They benefit from the uh, indemnity and, and settlement of of, of the Box Rebellion, but there is still this undercurrent of concern, doubt, guilt that as you describe, comes to the surface fairly soon afterward. It doesn't wait till the 1920s. As you describe, it comes about in 1905, 1906, 1907, and begins to exert an influence upon British policy from that point onward. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. um, So one of the people that, that I focus on in the chapter on 1900 to 1910 is Sir Robert Hart, um, and so Robert Hart has been the subject of a, a number of books um, by a really famous Chinese historians. So in John King Fairbank, you know, for example, and more, more recently, Robert Bickers and Hans Vandeman. Um, and he's an extremely important influential figure in Sino-British relations because he's the inspector general of the Chinese maritime customs. So he's actually, he, um, so the maritime customs collects collected revenue, um, from, from the, from, from the customs, uh, for the Chinese government really to pay off the indemnities and, you know, all the money that was owed to the Western powers. Um, and a British, a British was always kind of in charge, in charge of it, although they were employees of the Chinese government, but he, he's a really important figure. And um, right after the Boxer crisis, he wrote a book called these from the land of Sinem and uh, Sinem uh, that, that title was a reference actually to, uh, to the Bible, to Isaiah chapter 49, um, a verse a verse in that chapter. And in it, and in that book, Hart is already arguing for the need, the British, um, to begin thinking about re- renouncing the unequal treaties, to abolish the trappings of informal empire, to get rid of the unequal tariffs, um, to think about getting rid of extraterritoriality. And the reason why he's saying this is because he's saying that, it's because he says that... Um, we cannot have a kind of hypocritical stance towards the Chinese as a Christian nation. Um, we need to treat the Chinese in, in a moral way. It's not very well received, but the fact that somebody with such a high position and somebody who is kind of at the forefront of sino British relations um, espouses these views, I think, is really uh, an in- interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. one one thing. Uh, yeah, sorry. Can I? So what? So no, one thing that? He that he does. Do, yeah, one thing that he uses, and I think this is really interesting in terms of um, uh, the stereotypes and perceptions of, of the Chinese, is, is the idea of the Yellow Peril. Um, this is an idea that was originated in the you know in ancient times in the Greco-Persian Wars, but later on, East Asians were incorporated into the idea of the Yellow Peril, and it's this idea that. You know, masses of primitive, brutal savages, uh, who have powers of the occult were going to, uh, you know, were, were pose a huge threat and danger to the Western world that, um, that if kind of led by the right powers that they could, that they would be brought into this apocalyptic final battle with, with the West. And it was popularized by the Kaiser in Germany and in, in the 1890s. And then, and later on with the Fu Manchu books in England. Um, uh, but, but the really interesting thing is, is that, is that, uh, Sir Robert Hart buys into this this idea. Uh, he does kind of believe in the Yellow Peril, and a lot of commentators who who advocate for a more positive policy towards China uh, talk about it. Talk about uh, the need for a more conciliatory policy towards the Chinese because of the fear that the Chinese masses, um, were, you know, in all their hundreds of millions, would rise up against the West, and so it was ne- it, w- it was necessary to kind of placate them.
0: And that gets back to the common foundation of these differing views that you do reference is that Mm -hmm. while you do have these contrasts, they still are based on what really comes across as a striking distance. They do have people like Robert Hart, like G.E. Morrison, who have a degree of familiarity Mm -hmm. with direct familiarity with China. But oftentimes, the discourse is happening among all these people, uh, foreign secretaries, uh, permanent ministers in parliament, in the press, who have never seen China, who've never gotten within a thousand miles of China, and yet, there's, yet yeah. they're making these decisions that are rooted in something, and they're, they're rooted in this, uh, this, this sense of China's alienness. Should it be dominated? Should it be placated?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, and essentially, you bring up G. E. Morrison um, because G. E. Morrison was the Times correspondent, the, the Times China correspondent, based in, in Beijing. And and as such, he was really influential. He he and he hobnobbed with all the important people um, in in Whitehall. Um, you know, the, so uh, he so he would have conversations with the Foreign Secretary, um, Sir Edward Grey. Um, he also talked to the Secretary of State for India, John Morley, and. And, and around this period as well, after the Russo-Japanese War, um, Morrison, who had always been a real kind of supporter of, of the Japanese, really changes his tune and becomes an advocate for Chinese nationalism after the Japanese uh, win the win the war against Russia. Uh, and and kind of um, have are in the ascendance in in the in influence in China. Morrison resents that, and he begins to argue that the British need to kind of ally with with the Chinese. And and he has an ear um, with the people kind of in the highest echelons of power in London. So he comes back to London, and he has all these conversations, and he's pushing for for this kind of view, a view that is sympathetic to Chinese nationalism.
0: And this is coming about at the same time as. Uh... The liberals win the election in 1906. They uh, uh, introduced measures to put an end to the uh, opium trade. So there is a real shift mm-hmm. taking place in British policy that predates the 1920s. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so in in 19 in 1906, um, the, the, uh, Parliament finally, you know, votes uh, to end the British involvement in the opium trade. Uh, and, you know, this, this, the anti-opium movement has a long, ha- had a long genealogy, really, from the 18, from the 1830s. And, um, what I sought to find from the archives, what, what I found was that, you know, that, that, um, you know, par the par- parliament and the government, you know, they weren't just kind of operating in this vacuum, but, but all kinds of people were calling for the end of the, of the opium trade. Um, there were resolutions from, you know, Deptford women's, association, um, a group of Anglican bishops in China, uh, all kinds of, you know, uh, a New, New Zealand Council of Christian Churches, they were all sending in resolutions, you know, um, excoriating the immorality of the opium trade and, and pressing the government to, to end it.
0: Mm-hmm. So, but of course, this isn't all happening in a vacuum because China is itself undergoing a lot of internally driven changes, most dramatically with the uh with the ending of the imperial uh, uh, government in 1911. Mm -hmm. And how does that Mm -hmm. play into the perceptions and, and the uh, advocacy of policies in Britain towards China?
1: Yeah. um, Right. So the revolution is, is really a a watershed in the sense that it establishes the first Republic ever in Asia and it ends thousands of years of monarchical rule. Uh, And, you know, it's, it, there's actually, it's really interesting because the debate among historians today about whether or not, you know, it, it is this true watershed, whether 1911 constitutes China's an entrance into modernity, um, it kind of mirrors debates that were going on at, at the time. Um, and especially, um, in the British government about how seriously, uh, 1911 should be taken. Were the Republicans, were they, were they, you know, true, truly modern, um, you know, modern leaders who, who were patriotic and had the kind of, uh, the nation's best interests um, in their heart, or or were they kind of the typical traditional uh, corrupt venal bureaucrats that that you know that, that the stereotype that the British had always kind of bought bought into? Um, and so this gives the occasion for for all kinds of debates um, uh, about the nature of of of, of the revolution. Um, and so G. E. Morrison is really active in, in this debate. He actually eventually is so positive about the, about the republic that he becomes, he signs on to a lucrative job. Become, he becomes the advisor to Ryan Sakai government in China. He drops his job as the Times correspondent. Um, but he's, but there's this huge debate between him and the Shanghai correspondent, J.O.P. Bland, who is a really interesting character. He's, um, this kind of acerbic, cantankerous kind of person. And, uh, he's, he, and he's very pessimistic about about uh, you know the Chinese Republic and about um, and about China. And so, yeah. And he's and, and it's really interesting how um, how he's just lambasting uh, you know the, the the talk of uplift and and kind of moral uh, lobby.
0: What one of the things I like uh, that you do at this point is how you tie it into the earlier metaphors that you uh, describe in the book about. You know, China being the sleeping giant, uh, dull by opium, and how the 1911 revolution uh, becomes sort of the, – they frame it in that context. Is China wakening up? Is this the, the point at which the, the slumbering giant now is beginning to stir? And, and, and how they are encountering this, this new event, and they uh, immediately revert back to the traditional uh, you know, modes of thinking, the traditional paradigms to try to process it.
1: Mhm yeah yeah exactly i mean those kinds of issues are, are and also you know what's happening you know from 1911 onwards um the, the thing is that so they're they're having these debates but then immediately they're kind of plunged into the first world war um and so there really isn't that much chance to kind of to, there isn't that much opportunity to give young china a chance at at, at this point um but what's important is that these ideas are, are there and that they're kind of being debated. And what's also important is um, the Americans really kind of come on the scene um, in, in in this period. So the U.S. Uh, at the, the U.S. really um, becomes a major player in Asia after the First World War. But already the Americans uh, are very supportive of the 1911 revolution. Rian Sakai sends a... Uh, he he asks you know christians all over the world to to pray for china and this is a you know huge public relations boon for him in the us you know all the americans are you know think that this is a great gesture and that you know that 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 china you know this this great ancient country you know c- might be able to kind of be be um Formed, you know, in the image of of the West, you know, of a progressive um, Christian kind of civilization, and so a lot of uh, Americans are, are are really excited about about the awakening of China more so than in England, um, and and so, but the increasing American influence, you know, over British policy is important because this is all kind of backing uh, American policy.
0: You mentioned the First World War, and it has a, you know. It major role in, in modern historical thinking about the, uh, about its impact upon the development and ultimately the uh, decline of the British Empire. How does it affect Britain's relations with China in the second decade of the 20th century and how does it fit within this ongoing debate about China and whether it is awakening or whether it's sort of a false dawn and, and China is still very much of a basket case?
1: mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah okay well there's I mean, there's a lot I, I think we can't underestimate how much Britain was affected by the first world war and we can't understand you know um, British policy towards China without taking into account the the, the overall context and and this is actually where um, when I wrote my dissertation, this is where I kind of began began the dissertation because I thought it was such an important in such an important point um so a few things a few things you know, after the first world war so economically. Britain had lost its economic dominance um, in in the world and in and in East Asia um, because they had been distracted. Other, you know, more competitions with the Japanese, um, even India, China, they all benefited from the vacuum that the British left. So they lost their dominance. Uh, but this also tied into the problem of massive unemployment after the First World War. Unemployment was at 10 percent in 1920 and it remained high. Uh, throughout the entire interwar period. And so it was really necessary to arrive at a solution to the to the problems, uh, to, uh, uh, to the economic problems. And China um, was always seen. It was kind of this platitude that China would be a panacea to all of Britain's economic ills. Um, with a market of 400 million, I mean, even today, even today, this is you know a, um, a major issue. You know, in um, the, the idea that you know, if the Chinese market would just open up to the West, uh, that would take care of, of all of our, our problems because because of its huge population. And so, policymakers are really keen to find a, a way to uh, to keep trade going, to increase trade with China, to cultivate good relations with China. Um, but but more broadly, um, the first, you know, after the First World War, obviously attitudes towards the use of force radically changed. Disarmament was a major aim. Pacifism gained in popularity. People joined all kinds of internationalist movements, you know, supporting the League of Nations. Um, and and so when challenges uh, came to the British interests in China, the British public was not ready to go to war. They were not ready to use force against China. And that was an important, that was always kind of in the back of the policymakers' mind. Um, and then, you know, one other important point that I wanted to bring out was that what was, what happened in China, the retreat that happened in China didn't happen kind of on its own. China was not a special, was not a special case. Um, generally we always think that decolonization for Britain happens after 1945, but actually in the interwar period, if we talk about informal empire, um, the British were kind of relinquishing quite a lot of gains. So, for example, in Turkey and Egypt and Persia and Siam and in, um, in Persia and in Siam, they give up. They renounce extraterritoriality by the end of the, the 1920s. Um, the Turks also win an independence and they abolished extraterritoriality in 1923. Uh, so this is part of a larger trend of things that are going on after the First World War.
0: You're also seeing another dimension that you uh, that plays a growing role in British attitudes towards China, which is the challenge of Bolshevism, the perception of the spread of communism. And in the latter chapters of your book, that is a perennial filter through which so many people in Britain see what's going on in China. That's the metric. Is this going to aid Bolshevism? Is this going to is this a response to Bolshevism, and that shapes how they not only perceive it but how they decide they're going to whether they're going to support it or oppose it,
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what kind of adds to the urgency of the uh, of, you know the the necessity of arriving at a solution um, to the British position in in China. Again, I think this kind of comes from that yellow peril idea, again, and actually quite overtly, J.L. Garvin, the editor of The Observer, um, he was also very influential in in the elite circles, and he was in correspondence with Austin Chamberlain, the foreign secretary. Um, But he uses that trope of the yellow peril, and as do uh, a lot of MPs in the parliamentary debates, Um, they see the Chinese as kind of childlike um, uh, unable to almost kind of think for themselves, but they're but they're violent masses that are easily led, you know, by um, the, by by another force. And so they see the Bolshevik threat as you know the Soviets kind of manipulate uh, as manipulating the, the Chinese masses uh, against the West. And so it's really important to consider then, well, how how can the British government appease the Chinese and you know take. Um, and and take the mantle leadership away from the Soviets and and kind of get the Chinese to, uh, to, you know, to to be friendly with them instead.
0: And this brings us to 1925 and the events that happened in May and and how you see that as a real pivot point. I was wondering if you could explain what happened then and, and, and why does it really accelerate or change a lot of these developments that you've been talking about?
1: Yeah, okay, so 1920, so May 30th, specifically 1925, is, is, is really important. Um, so at this point, the Kuomintang and the CCP, so the Chinese Nationalists and the Chinese Communist Party, they're all kind of gaining in strength and uh, they're going around organizing workers into pro-Chinese and anti-imperial movements in important cities. And Shanghai is uh, the, you know, is the most, is the kind of jewel, uh, in, you know, Britain's informal empire in, in China. Shanghai is the most important, um, city. Um, and, and, uh, Shanghai's workers were kind of being organized into these anti-imperial movements. Um, and there were a bunch of conflicts and strikes that, that, that escalated in 1925. At first they were targeted at the Japanese because, uh, uh, um, so, so there were strikes at the Japanese-run cotton mills, but at one of them, the, a Chinese protester was shot dead. And in the aftermath of his death, um, the protests became bigger and bigger. And, um, and they eventually, uh, the protests kind of reached the international settlement. Um, a bunch of students were arrested and brought into a police station, uh, along the Nanjing Road in the international settlement. Uh, and when they were arrested, the crowd, the crowd kind of came demanding for their release. So thousands of people, uh, you know, started you know, were, were around this police station. And the British uh, inspector in charge, actually, the British inspector in charge was actually off uh, at the race course watching some horse racing, so he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't that bothered. But the, but the second in charge actually ordered um, his, the troops. So they were Sikh and Chinese policemen um, ordered them to shoot at the crowd. And, um, and so several died and many were, were wounded. And this sparked a series of strikes and boycotts all over the country that were targeted specifically at the British. This was a huge anti-British movement. And there was a boycott in Hong Kong that really affected uh, British, British trade. And so this was a direct, um, a, a direct attack uh, on the British position in, in China.
0: It it really is an interesting one, too, on two levels. One, as I was reading, I was thinking about the context. This is six years after the Amritsar massacre in India, which was different in the sense that that was an area where Britain had direct control, and yet even there, it was enormously controversial. And by doing the strikes and the boycotts, you're creating a situation where you're attacking the very reason why Britain is there, and you're doing so in an environment where, unlike in India, the British have... Even have far less ability to directly go in and deal with this, so you're striking at the very you know reason for their existence and it's kind of underscoring is it really worthwhile to be here if we can't really get what we want if we're if we're even less constrained? Is it perhaps time to cut our losses mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah it, exactly um so on the one hand, you know the economic troubles at home. Uh, and then the kind of nature of uh, you know, attacking economic interests in this movement, they kind of come together, forcing the British government to, to you, know, you know, to really press for a solution. They need to find a solution so that trade can be resumed once again. But on the other hand, they're constrained um, because the domestic environment, you know, there uh, there's kind of there's public support for disarmament and peace and a real resistance to using force to enforce British claims. In China. Um, But you also have the but, you know, all these kinds of things are inflaming the the business lobby, the China's, the China Association in in Britain. And they're constantly you know at the office and and asking the foreign office to do something. But the foreign office is always kind of repelling them and and saying, you know, sorry, our hands are tied. We we can't do anything. And so so the business lobby is really quite, quite angry at this point.
0: It's, it's also, also at, at this point getting wrapped, getting wrapped up the industry, into the growing opposition that you're seeing on the right towards this criticism of empire, this the signals of withdrawal from the empire. And, and you spend a lot of time talking about this right wing opposition from people like Leo Maxey and and in uh, the National Review and and how they're arguing. For, for the whole, know, you know, you fire know, fire another, fire another fire round. We need to, we need to teach them what's what, and and and, and how that is very much uh, how policy is having to go very much against that tide.
1: Yeah, yeah, which is interesting because the government in charge is, is conservative, um, and 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 what's really interesting, and and what, what I brought out in this book, um, what, what I feel hasn't really been brought out that much, is. Um, at the same time of these right-wing you know, protests, there's also um, really there's a lot of left-wing interest in in what's going on in China, um, and so 1925 is also the year where th- there begins to be a hands-off China movement, and this gains kind of nationwide this guess, nationwide support. You know, by 1927 there are nationwide protests all around the country just you know, supporting the Chinese and 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 you know and um, and kind of pressuring the government. The, the government, I don't think. Li, you know necessarily listens directly you know to what labor is saying um they, they think they're a bit too radical but they're not unaware that 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 there is this kind of strong feeling uh, about um about about what's going on in china um yeah, also I, I, should, I should add, make it make clear
0: that when you talk about labor, you're talking specifically about the labor party uh not yeah, just yeah, you know, yeah, labor, the, the labor, labor party, movement in general yeah. Yes.
1: yes yeah so. yeah mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, yeah. one of the, that's
0: one of the interesting uh, parts about that, which is how you're seeing within Parliament the expression of that. How there is a movement, which uh, in a party, which is much more overtly critical of imperialism than even the Liberals had been. Whereas Liberals were going after. Yeah. Narrowly speaking, the, the, the opium trade from a uh, moral standpoint, from a religious standpoint, the labor movement is much more willing to embrace themes of anti-imperialism. I mean, we're talking about people like George Lansbury, who goes on to lead uh, oh, yeah. the Labor Party in the 1930s. They're, they're willing to form organizations that are about cri- criticizing uh, British policy in China and, and arguing for what you describe as imperial retreat.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, so yeah. So, but but there's also an inter- intersection, you know, between kind of a, a moral stance um, and you know, and anti imperialism. And George Lansbury, that you know, who you brought up, um, is a really good example of that. He was a Christian socialist and um, famous for 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 his feminism, um, but his kind of Christianity also played, you know, played into it. And um, what's really interesting is um, is the is how much Christian organizations are activated by by what's happening in China. Um, so the YWCA, the National Christian Council, uh, even the establishment of the Institute of, of Pacific Relations, um, the, the IPR, uh, it, it's established in July 1925, and and even today it's it's an important uh, it's important kind of uh, uh, um, th- kind of think tank. Um, but its establishment, a lot of the people involved in it were related in, related to the YMCA. Twenty two percent were kind of directly related. About ninety percent saw themselves as class themselves as Christians, and, and a lot of their recommendations towards China were based on um, precepts of kind of Christian morality of of, of not being hypocritical tor- towards China. Um, and, and, and so it's it's really interesting how all these things kind of come together.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so then. then- what how does policy change in the aftermath of these protests and these boycotts
1: so some of these some of these people um they're, they 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 have a way you know they have um they they speak to the foreign office they speak to the government so some of the most trusted advisors are henry hodgkin um uh so Henry Hodgkin or uh, or or Sir Charles Addis so Henry Hodgkin was the secretary was the secretary of the National Christian Council Sir Charles Addis which was really interesting was a chairman of the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation HSBC um so he was he kind of represented financial interests but at the same time he was very he was a very kind of devout person and very much you know it, it, the way he talked about China he kind of conflated it with kind of the missionary impulse as well um but they're talking to Sir Austin Chamberlain, they're talking to members in the Far Eastern Department who are responsible for, for making policy, and um, and they're listening to them. And so by 1926, you know, as the uh, the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, um, is making its military gains through the Northern Expedition as they're making their way up up China, uh, and looking like a real viable. Uh, government uh, in China because prior to this point China had been thrown into a period of, ca- of kind of civil war chaos there's a lot of fighting between warlords after the death of Ren Sekai um but then but then but the guomindang seems to be gaining strength and so so the government needs to is beginning to assess okay is this a true manifestation of nationalism how should we treat it and by the end of 1926 um they decide that uh, they, that, that the government needs to make a kind of firm declaration that they are willing to exceed the demands of Chinese nationalism and begin the process of giving China back its tariff autonomy. And that, that's significant because that's one of the first things signed away in the unequal treaties. So giving back this aspect of Chinese sovereignty. Uh, so the British, uh, um, writes, so the, so the Foreign Office puts out this memorandum in December and they call, it's also called the the Christmas Memorandum. It's a, it's showing their goodwill towards the Chinese.
0: Another aspect of the uh, Guomindang uh, support that the British were beginning to consider is the fact that that was also was around the time that the Guomindang is not just uh, militarily going after the uh, the Chinese Communist Party, but they've also it's they in the process of doing so they've cleaved themselves away from communism. In the early 1920s, you, you described there was that that. that, that, that flirtation, that involvement that led a lot of people on the right to say, well, maybe the, 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 you know, we can't trust the Kuomintang, but now that they've done that, they, they, they seem like a much safer bet for, uh, to, for, uh, entrusting in a sense, or, 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 or backing in terms of maintaining some degree of British interest in China.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, so Chiang Kai-shek, um, he, he calls for the, uh, the, or, so he he launches the White Terror in Shanghai in um in in 1927 in this in uh, the, 12th, the 12th of April 1927. Uh, basically, this is a, a massive purge of the communists in the party. Uh, and at this point, he's kind of in a state of you know civil war with um, the left wing of the Kuomintang. So there's a left wing, uh, there's another government in Wuhan. Uh, but gradually, Chiang Kai-shek is becoming kind of ascendant. He's consolidating his power, uh, and and they realize okay he's not going to be a puppet of the communists anymore on the one hand this kind of dampens down the enthusiasm that the left wing labor and the communists had for the the nationalist movement um that hands off china movement kind of ends around 1927 kind of fades away um but but the right wing is also somewhat somewhat uh, appeased um and not and not so vociferously opposed and to um, the, the British government's overtures, you know, of kind of conciliation with the Chinese.
0: There's one uh, final aspect that you mentioned near the end of the book, which is one of the consequences of all of these dramatic events is that it's, it, along with broader changes that are taking place globally, is that the profits that business interests are getting from China are down. And I, I wonder if there was some sort of, uh, if that contributed as well, the sense that no, that the British could not make as much money in China with these methods, that maybe they should not be as as, as committed to uh, such a direct and, and, and frankly expensive involvement. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well. So, so so it's interesting. Yeah. So economic interests obviously suffer. Um, but economic interests don't improve when they change, when they change their policy. And that's part of my argument that the British actually did retreat in, in China. Um, because there is a, there is, uh, um, a school of, a, a school of thought, a school of historians, especially economic historians who argue that actually British, the, uh, the British never retreated from China in the interwar period. Um, that these different tactics were just ways of, of kind of, you know, to further financial interests. Um, but it never really kind of plays. It never really plays out. The British keep losing money. And so the really interesting thing is, is then, you know, what what ultimately motivates policy? Is it just finances? Is it just money? You know, all the time or or do um, or do people's assumptions you know, about a certain about the other um, moral considerations, ideology, all of these other aspects play into the, the story of empire as well?
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yeah, sure. So I've I looked at the end of uh, the end of British Empire, um, the retreat of British Empire. Uh, so what I'm thinking about doing and what I've kind of started on is to look at the beginning of the British Empire in China. And, I, and once again, I want to connect uh, the political decisions towards China with the intellectual environment. Um, so broadly, broadly speaking, people have seen, okay, that there's a shift from Sinophilia, so the rage for Chinoiserie in the uh, 18th century, to this like, to this marked shift, you know, Sinophobia, uh, after the failure of the McCartney mission, trying to open trade with China, after that failed, then what's commonly understood is that the British then, you know, begin to uh, speak about uh, how arrogant um, and how uh, um, and how hopeless China is, how decrepit it, 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 it is um, and how it's necessary for the British to come in and modern and, and help to modernize China. Um, but if you get into the, the there's been a lot of litera- literary studies uh, on you know, British uh, views of China in this period. And and what, what comes across is that the discourse is not that unified. Uh, and that the knowledge about China was manipulated to serve all kinds of purposes. And also in terms of the origins of the Opium War, a lot of new books have shown that, that actually the Opium War, there's a lot of contingency, a lot of chaos, you know, things that happened a few days before the outbreak contribute to, to the outbreak. So I think this story is a lot more complex. It's not just in the attitude necessarily, the attitudes change, I think, and then there's war. Um, so there's a lot, I think, to, to bring out a lot to a, a lot of space for, um, for for scholarly research.
0: Well, it sounds topic. like it sounds like a great project. I hope we can have you back once you uh, publish it. Yeah, sure. Uh, Phoebe Chow, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.